Joshua. Up to this point, uh, pretty much verse by verse, but uh, it may be a little more thematic as time goes on. Uh, but we, we need to see some amazing stuff here in the book of Joshua this morning, and we'll cover, Lord willing, the entire chapter of Joshua chapter 3. Well, let me go ahead and uh, pray, and then we'll look to the text. Father, we are so thankful. Yes, you are worthy of worship, worthy of praise, worthy of love, honor, devotion. And God, you've shown yourself over and over again in this message you've preserved for us, the Bible, and in our own lives, that you are worthy, that you are great, almighty, powerful, you are our God. And we ask that today as we look into your word that we would see what it is that you have for us, that our hearts would be drawn closer to you, that we would walk with you more closely and understand more about you and who it is you've called us to be. And Father, we ask together that though I am a sinner by nature and by choice, that I would not get in the way of your text this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let me start today by reminding you of the summary statement of the book of Joshua that I gave you when we started this series, the, the Joshua summary statement. There are plenty that could be made, but this is what I came up with. Yahweh keeps His promises by powerfully saving His people through faith and purging the evil among them. Therefore, we shall courageously follow Him into blessing. Well, we're going to see more of that here in chapter 3 this morning as we look to uh, this dramatic event. We're joining Israel in the midst of a very dramatic event in the narrative in their history. This event is often overshadowed by the Red Sea. So many people can remember the Red Sea event. Uh, maybe they've even seen the movie, right? And how the Red Sea parted. Uh, well, this is just as miraculous, and it is very significant for the people of Israel. After the spies had come back from Jericho, if you remember last week, the spies were in Jericho, and they were interacting with Rahab, and we worked through that whole scenario. After the spies came back with their happy report that the people's hearts were melting before them, that God was indeed giving them the victory in that land, we pick up today in Joshua chapter 3, verse 1, to see what happens next. They're headed into the land of Canaan, where Jericho is and several other pagan people. They're headed into that land because God has given them that land, and He's about to work wonders among them. Well, let's read Joshua 3, and I'll read down through verse 5. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan. And they lodged there, before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp. And when they commanded the people, or and they commanded the people rather, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. 
However, there shall be between you and it a measure of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Well, as we consider what's happening here, um, we're joining Israel in the midst of three days at the Jordan's banks. They were there next to the Jordan River, and it says that they were there for three days. We see in verse 1 that they lodged next to the Jordan, and in verse 2 we see that it was for a period of three days. Well, the Jordan River was an intimidating river, especially with this many people. We'll talk about the number of people later on, but there were a lot of people. And this was a major uh, hindrance to their getting into the land, particularly because of the time of year that it was. If you drop down and look at verse 15 with me, notice the parenthetical statement that we see at the end of verse 15, where we have preserved for us here this little note, that the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest. So here in this land, the springtime, the waters are overflowing, and it's a very rapid, strong river. This river was more of a separating element in the land than it was a joining element. And besides the river itself, besides just the water, you have to envision that this is a major canyon. They are near what's called the Jordan Rift Valley. We're just north of the Dead Sea here. And the walls of this canyon are very steep and they come down, very rocky, rough terrain. With it being this time of year, there were likely all kinds of plants and shrubs and bushes and wildlife that were in their way, and they had to descend down one of the earth's deepest canyons. The Dead Sea is about 1,400 feet below sea level at its surface, and they're just north of that, and they have to descend down into this canyon where the Jordan River is headed south toward that Dead Sea. It was a very rapid current overflowing And to man, of course, it was impossible to bring all of these people across that river. But that's where God told them to go. God said, you're going to go across that river into the land of Canaan. Now, there were, of course, some people who were able to go across. If you can just think logically about the book of Joshua, how did the spies get to Jericho? Well, they had to cross, didn't they? And so apparently they were strong enough, mighty enough to make it across the river. And this is a very interesting note. You can just jot down if you're interested in this kind of stuff. 1 Chronicles 12. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we hear about the sons of Gad. Gad was one of the tribes of Israel. And it says the sons of Gad were very valiant men. They were very strong men. And it describes how valiant they were by saying they're able to swim across the Jordan. (laughs) So it took a valiant man, a strong man, a warrior, someone who was in the prime of his life to be able to cross this river. And here comes Israel, men, women, children, and all their stuff, and they're at the banks of this mighty river that they had to look down a steep cliff to see as it overflows its banks, and the canyon was likely more than a mile wide. A very intimidating task. And we can't just pass over there at the start of verse 2 that they were there for three days. Have you heard that phrase, hurry up and wait? There was a little bit of that going on here. Hurry up, we got to get to the land of Canaan. It's time to go. God says to go. And they get there and they camp for three days. 
It had to be a restless 72 hours, constantly hearing the downhill roar of that river. You can imagine that, I think, in your own ears, just the sound of the river roaring for three days. Why would God have them wait? Why does God have you wait? You wait for stuff, do you? You know what this is like? Waiting on an email, waiting on a phone call, waiting for someone to change, waiting for circumstances to develop. God makes us wait sometimes. And when you consider it in the grand scheme of life, three days isn't all that bad, is it? God makes them wait for three days. And I think we'll see as the text continues to unfold just what he's up to. Well, here was the plan. Look at verse 5 again. The plan was to follow God because God will do wonders among you, Joshua says. Verse 5, Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. In verse 6, Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Well, the Ark of the Covenant makes its first appearance in the book right here in this chapter, and we're going to hear more about the Ark of the Covenant all the way through chapter 8 in Joshua. We're going to see a lot of the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. And it's important that we have just a basic understanding of what this is, because some of you might say, I thought Noah had an ark. What is this? Well, this is a different kind of ark, okay? This isn't a boat. This is the Ark of the Covenant. This is a divinely designed piece of furniture. This is a piece of furniture that God gave them specific directions to build with specific measurements and uh, different features that it was to have, and it contained certain things. It's like this big chest that contained certain elements. The two tablets that God gave to Moses for the Ten Commandments were found in the Ark of the Covenant along with other things. Importantly, though, for our understanding here this morning is that the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence of God. When the Ark of the Covenant appears in Israel, this symbolized the very presence of God. That Ark was often kept in the holiest place in the tabernacle or in the temple, and not just anybody could walk back there. There was a curtain that separated that area from the rest of the tabernacle, from the rest of the temple. And only the singular high priest, there was only one high priest at a time in Israel, only he could go in there and only once a year. And when he went into that place, he met with God. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of his presence. And you can read more about the Ark in the Old Testament, those first five books of the Bible and the Torah. You can also read about it in the New Testament. If you want to jot down Hebrews 9, that's a great place to read more about that Ark. Well, Joshua commands that this Ark be carried ahead of the people. And remember, important to note, the Ark symbolized the presence of God. Well, why is it going before the people? Because God was going before the people. The people were to see and to recognize that God, Yahweh, truly does go before them in their battle. And it gave them direction. Just from a very practical perspective, you've got all these people who haven't been here before. Joshua puts that in his statement at the end of verse 4. He says, you 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 need to know where to go. You've never been here before. And if you're 2,000 feet away not 2,000 feet, 3,000 feet, 2,000 cubits. If you're that far away, you'll be able to see where it is you are to go. And they're also to remember that the Lord Himself goes before them. In the Old Testament, when the Ark of the Covenant was moving, God was moving. 
And I want to give you a cross-reference. This is Numbers chapter 10. In his dealings with Moses, God was showing him his presence through the Ark of the Covenant. And notice what Moses calls out for from the Lord. It says in Numbers 10, 35, it came about when the Ark set out that Moses said, rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. When it, the Ark, came to rest, he said, return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. When the ark was moving, God himself was moving. When the ark was at rest, God was at rest among his people, comforting his people. And this going before the people into the land of Canaan, as this whole generation of people is viewing the ark from a distance, this is exactly what Moses said would happen. Their parents, the generation that preceded this generation, They were told by Moses that God would go before them. The Lord, your God, will go before you. And if they only believed, they would be in the land. It would be that generation that went. But they refused. They believed the report of ten spies who said, Ooh, that's too scary. God can't do that. And they didn't enter. They had to die off. And now their children, certainly remembering why their parents died, They're told by Joshua, keep your eyes fixed on the presence of God, just as Moses told us, God is going before us. Keep your eyes fixed on the ark, and God will go before you. And they could only go in holiness. Look at verse 5 again with me. Verse 5 is very important in this chapter. Joshua tells them to consecrate themselves. What's their duty here as they're coming to the end of three days and it's time for something to happen? Joshua says, consecrate yourselves. In the law, we're told, this is in Leviticus 11, God says to Israel, I am the Lord your God, I am Yahweh your Elohim, and I saved you from the land of Egypt, therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is what was put on God's people from that time, to be holy even as He is holy. And here we hear, Joshua echoing the law when he says, God is about to work wonders, consecrate yourselves, purify yourselves, focus on the Lord and the Lord alone. This was no light affair for Israel. They were called to be set apart for God's work because there's a miracle coming. There's deliverance coming. There's an amazing display of God's sovereign power and His grace to His people coming. So consecrate yourself. Now, I think there are great connections here for us when it comes to awaiting the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about that later. But for now, notice how Joshua implores them to consecrate themselves. You see, Joshua was a leader that was full of faith, wasn't he? I love how he says this in verse 5, For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. There was no doubt in his heart that we see in the text. He believed that God was going to do this, that tomorrow Yahweh was going to show up, and that mighty river you've been listening to for three days, it's going to go away. That obstacle is going to be removed. God will do wonders. What great confidence Joshua had, believing the promise. And leaders today, Christian leaders, need to have this same sort of confidence, don't they? You husbands, you parents that are out there, 
in whatever capacity God has you in leading. We are to lead people in faith. We're not to lead people to conform to our own ideas. We're not to lead people to do whatever we think they should do. We're to lead them in faith based on what God has said. And what a great example we get here from Joshua's leadership. He knew, of course, it would take a miracle. There's no way they're crossing that thing without a miracle. (laughs) You can't get in a kayak and get across that. It wasn't going to happen. But he was confident. He was assured in his faith because of the Lord's ability. Nothing with his own ability, nothing with the abilities of anyone in Israel. He was confident in the abilities of the Lord to work it out. And he was trusting in the last counsel he received from Moses, his mentor, when Moses said, Yahweh will cross ahead of you. So he tells the people, put your eyes on God, that ark that's 3,000 feet away. Keep your eyes fixed on what God is doing because he's going to work a miracle. And this is important to recognize that Joshua was leading in faith here because a major purpose in this miracle was to turn the people's hearts toward Joshua as their leader. You see that in verse 7 with me. I'll read all the way down to verse 13. But let's pick up in Joshua 3, 7. He says, Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. Wow. He called it because of God's working in him to give him this vision of the miracle. Well, glance again at verse 7 with me. You see what God says to Joshua. What is God up to? He's exalting Joshua in the sight of all Israel. His exaltation as Israel's leader was truly just beginning at this point. Now, if you remember, The people had an interest in following Joshua before. Look back at chapter 1, Joshua chapter 1, verse 17, and look at what the people said, perhaps rashly. Either case, they say, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. This reminds me a little bit of at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 and 20. When God descends upon the mountain and the people say, whatever you say, we will do. And they say it so quickly. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? That generation isn't in this chapter. They've died off because of their disbelief. However, we do see that at this point, God is going to use this event to turn the hearts of the people to Joshua, that he would be exalted among the people. And sometimes, I think you know this, 
Sometimes people have to go through stuff before they can commit to somebody else. If you've ever had a, a change of supervision at your job and gotten a new boss, you think, can I really trust this person? How do I know that this person's going to continue being as good as my last boss? I really liked my last boss. And perhaps the people were thinking, can we trust Joshua? They said they would, but God says, through this, they're going to know. And he did the same thing with Moses. This isn't the first time God has done this. In Exodus chapter 14, the end of Exodus 14, right after the Red Sea event, I love the way this is described, Exodus 14, 30, says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Through that event, the people knew Moses is the one we're to follow. Moses is the one we're to listen to. And through this event in Joshua's life, they're going to realize Joshua is truly their leader. Our experiences are powerful, aren't they? The experiences we go through in life, the way God uses them to turn our hearts. And the same God who used the Red Sea was set to use the Jordan River for Joshua's sake. And so Joshua, receiving this message from the Lord, he gets this instruction, verse 8. Look at this. Okay, Joshua, I'm going to do this. So go ahead and command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, just stand in it. (laughs) What nonsense that had to sound like to the priests, right? Just stand. Go stand in the waters. Perhaps some of them said, do you want us just to walk across it, Joshua? Is that what you're wanting? Well, no. God was going to work a wonder. God was going to do an amazing work. And so perhaps to bolster their confidence in God's ability to work this miracle, I love what Joshua does. This is God, of course, communicating to Joshua, go say this. And now when it comes time for Joshua to say it, look with me, starting at verse 10, just glance over, this is Joshua's commission to the people. And you know what he does? He gives them good theology. He gives them confidence by reminding them of just who God is that God is able to do this. I think there's a, this phrase that Joshua uses very specifically in verses 11 and 13. Look at verse 11 with me, where Joshua says that this Ark of the Covenant, it's of the Lord of all the earth. And you see again in verse 13, when he says what's going to happen, he reminds them that the God that's performing this is the Lord of all the earth. This isn't a God of their imagination. This isn't a God who was just made up generations ago and the tradition has carried on. This isn't a God who is confined to a temple. This is the Lord of all the earth. And if we truly believe that the God who has saved us, the God who has redeemed us, the one who is calling us in this life is the Lord over all the earth, is a river going to stop Him? No way. Not a chance. Does it matter if it's the time of year when the river's overflowing? Does it matter if it's a half mile down and a half mile up? Does it matter if you've got 10 kids and they're all chirping and whatever animals and other stuff that you have and they're just making life hectic? Does it matter? No. Because no one's going to stop the Lord of all the earth. No person, no thing 
can stop our God. There's that old jazzy love song, ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you, babe. Well, there's no mountain, there's no river, there's no canyon, there's nothing that will stop the Lord of all the earth. And when he's reminding them of this title of God, that he is the Lord of the earth, what's he communicating? Well, he's communicating that he's not just present in the ark. Keep your eyes on the ark, but remember, that's a symbol. The Lord truly fills heaven and earth, just as Jeremiah 23 says. He's the Lord of the earth. He fills the earth. He made the earth. He's not limited to the ark. Further, he's reminding them by calling Yahweh the Lord of all the earth, He's reminding him that God owns the land of Canaan. The land that they're going to, they're not going to have to barter for it when they get there. God's not going to have to make an offer and hear a counteroffer. He already owns it. That's his land. He's the Lord of all the earth. He owns every square inch of this globe. Further, like I mentioned, he's reminding them that that river cannot stop him. He made the river. He made the seasons. He made that river rise at the right time so the water would come down and this whole water cycle and the whole ecosystem would work the way it does. He's the Lord of the ecosystem. You can't stop this God. He's the omnipresent, omnipotent owner of all things. And He cannot be stopped. What's impossible with man is possible with the Adonai, the Lord of all the earth. And not only that, but look at verse 10 with me. He also reminds them, that their God is the living God. He's the living God. He's telling him, his, the people through this, that God will pull you through. If he's the living God, you'll live too. Your life is in his hands. God had given Joshua a vision of how this would go. And Joshua now says, this will happen. Look at the end of verse 13. He tells them, the waters which are flowing down from above will Not might, not probably will, but will stand in one heap. You see, the time of the filling up of the sin of the Amorite was full. All the way back in Genesis, we won't turn there, but in Genesis 15, 16, God told Abraham that he wasn't the one that was going to enter the land, that it was going to be generations after him. And why? It's because of the sin of the the Canaanite people. It wasn't yet full. They were filling it up, and now it's reached the time where their sin is full, and only God knows all the details of what that means. But he had, he had them continue on and continue to reject him and continue to sin and continue to persecute his people. He let them do it until a certain time, and once they reached that time, God says, okay, it's time to move. I'm going to act. I'm going to act in judgment over these people, and for Joshua... And the Israelites, it was time to go. God was going to do it. God was going to expand their view of Him through this. They had been planning for the miracle, and now it was time to walk through the miracle. Let's read about it in these last four verses, starting at verse 14. It says, So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan... And the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest. The waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap 
a great distance away at Adam, the city that is by Zarethan. And those which were flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Wow. There it was, stated simply. Next week we'll look at that in a little more detail. But there it was. God said He would do it, and God did it. The water stood up in one heap like a liquid bluff. And we'll discuss those details more in just a moment. But the first thing I want us to see is in verses 14 and 15. We should first notice that God worked this miracle in accordance with the faith of the people, didn't He? Look at verse 14, how it just says simply, the people set out from their tents. The people left their tents. As crazy as that plan may have sounded, as crazy as the description that came out of Joshua's mouth may have sounded, the people moved in faith, didn't they? They left their tents because they believed. And also in verse 15, the priests, they came to the edge of the river. Just as Joshua instructed them to do, they went and they dipped their toes in that water in faith. They followed through in believing. They were a consecrated people, as Joshua told them to be in verse 5. They were a believing people acting in faith. And so we see just simply by these two verses that as God offers rest and blessing, such rest and blessing does remain unattainable without faith that latches on to God's every word, doesn't it? In Hebrews chapter 4, this is talked about when it describes rest and the rest that, God's offer, that God offers. Why was rest not realized among certain people, the author of Hebrews asks. And you know what his answer is? Because they did not latch on to God's words in faith. When you lack faith in what God has said, you won't find rest. When you don't have faith in what God has pronounced, you won't find the blessing. It is only in believing that we receive rest and that we receive the blessing of God. You see, the words of blessing do not profit a man if the substance of the blessing is ignored. The words of the blessing don't profit a man if the substance is ignored. God says, here's your land, Israel. Go! Go is pretty vital to that, isn't it? The going had to happen. They had to leave their tents. They had to go. So like them, we have to recognize that we have a responsibility to hear the Word of God, don't we? and to believe, and in faith, do. We have a responsibility to hear what God has said and believe and walk by faith. That's what these people were doing, was following God in faith. The next thing I want us to see is that God gives us the details of the miracle, not the least of which, of course, is the timing. We've already addressed that, that parenthetical statement in verse 15. It's the last time that you would ever pick to try to cross that river. In fact, it's probably one of the last places you'd pick to cross when you consider the 60-mile range between the, the upper lake and the Dead Sea. That's not one of the places you would like to pick to cross, especially this time of year. But that's where God had them, isn't it? You think this magnifies the work of God a little bit? You think this magnifies God's work to put them in a bind? <laughs> to put them in a situation where 
this isn't what we wanted. I didn't ask for this. I asked for easy street. But what's God going to do? He's going to magnify himself through this miracle. We also get the details of the cities. The city named Adam. Perhaps you only knew of the man named Adam in the Bible. Well, there's a city named Adam. And what we know of the city, as it's described here, is that it's about 20 miles north of where they are. It's about 20 miles north of Jericho. And you notice that our text says this. It says in verse 16 that this happened a great distance away. The water stood up in a heap a great distance away. So the water level and the water intensity slowly waned. As from 20 miles away, it was stopped. As they were standing there, the level and the intensity slowly just went down, and the ground dried up before them because of God's miraculous power. The water was, in fact, up in a heap, just as Joshua said it would, as God told him. It was dammed up by the miraculous power of God. There are some people who feel the need to try to explain this with some sort of a landslide near that place. Perhaps that is what happened, but God doesn't tell us that, does He? And God doesn't need landslides, does He? And so, however He did it, God dammed up the water and it was stopped. And when we consider the details of the text, we do see some similarities to Moses and the Red Sea, don't we? I've explained a couple of those. But there are some uh, significant differences, actually. There are some significant differences between the Red Sea and the Jordan River, and they are very interesting. And the details help us grasp the text. There's a commentator, and you're probably going to hear this name again. So if you're going to laugh at his name, just laugh now so you won't laugh every time I say it. He's Jewish, all right? Arnold Fruchtenbaum. That's his name, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. So I might say that more and more as the series goes on. But he laid out this helpful, simple table that contrasted the Red Sea with the Jordan River crossing. First, at the Red Sea crossing, this terminated the time in Egypt as the Israelites escaped from the Egyptians. However, at the Jordan River crossing, this initiated the entrance into the Promised Land to approach and, qu- and conquer the Canaanites. The Red Sea terminated time. The Jordan River initiated time. The Red Sea crossing, God used the strong east wind. Do you remember that detail in the text? God used a strong east wind at nighttime. In the Jordan River crossing, there was no specific means needed to make one side stand up in a heap, and it occurred in broad daylight. I love that. Third, the Red Sea crossing killed the Egyptian army. At the Jordan River crossing, there were no casualties. The Red Sea crossing, it was done for a murmuring, disbelieving, and unconsecrated people. The Jordan River crossing, it was done for a believing, obedient, and consecrated people. And finally, the Red Sea crossing, dead bodies were everywhere after the miracle, as we read about earlier. But at the Jordan River crossing, as we'll see next week, only 12 stones remained after that miracle. I thought those are some pretty interesting details to share with you. And through all of that, Israel crossed over as God worked this miracle among them. The tribes of Israel crossed, and that includes those two and a half tribes that we talked about in chapter 1. The tribes of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Turn with me to the next chapter, Joshua 4. I think it will be helpful for you to see some of the details we'll look at next week as you grasp how they crossed over and the more details that God gives us. Joshua 4, look at verse 12 with me. Joshua 4, verses 12 and 13. 
it tells us that the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 equipped for war crossed for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. So here we get a number. This is the only place, Joshua, where we get a number. And notice that this number is talking about two and a half tribes and just the warriors that were sent from those tribes. And if you're like me, you're curious, well, how many more than that were there crossing over this Jordan River? Well, we do get a total number, believe it or not, not too long before this in Israel's history, there was a census taken. And in Numbers 26, 51, uh, Numbers chapter 26, verse 51, it says, these are those who were numbered of the sons of Israel, 601,730. Now, something to know about this number is that it doesn't include children under 20. This is only for those over the age of 20. It also doesn't include the Levites. So when you put all of this together, that number that we had for the number of Israel and the 40,000 warriors that were sent over, we're talking well over a million people when you include all the children and all that they had with them. Probably close to about 2 million people went through this river. Perhaps more miraculous than the waters being stopped is getting 2 million people to do the same thing, isn't it? 2 million people. That is astounding. That is absolutely astounding. And the priests, as we saw at the end of chapter 3 there, the priests continued to stand in the gap as the two million passed through while they all made it. The priests stood firmly and the people crossed safely. And Joshua was truly revered at this time because of how he led the people in faith. Again, chapter 4, verse 14, Joshua 4, 14 on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. Wow. The Lord had truly gone before them, didn't he? The Lord had truly made a safe passage for them, and they were safe because of him. They weren't safe because of what they did, they were safe because of what he did. Another interesting cross-reference to jot down is Psalm 114. It's only eight verses, I believe, but in Psalm 114, the psalmist talks about this time where the Lord rolled back the river Jordan. The Lord did it for His people. It's important to think about this, too. Many who crossed the Jordan River also crossed the Red Sea. Now, they were younger when it happened. Many of them would have been in their late teens but they remembered that crossing of the Red Sea, and now they've also crossed through the Jordan. These are dramatic displays of divine sovereignty, aren't they? Absolutely dramatic displays of divine providence and care. And that's the point. The point here isn't to have some cool story that would make a cool painting, though it would. It is a cool story. And it would make a cool painting, and you can feel free to do that. But the point is this, when people are united to God in faith, when the people believe and follow God in faith, God carries them, doesn't He? God carries those who are His own. He protects and provides in the truest sense. You can think about your own life. 
Through many dangers, toils, and snares. We sing that line, don't we? Through many dangers and toils and snares, we've already come. But there's more ahead. Why have we made it thus far? How can we have hope that we'll make it through the next ones? It's because the Lord of all the earth is involved and at work in our lives, isn't He? Why are you here today in the shape you're in? Now, some of you might say it's not not a good shape. (laughs) I had a friend who had a t-shirt that says, I'm in shape, round is a shape. Uh, (laughs) But why are you here with air in your lungs? Why are you here, hopefully, believing and trusting in the same God who pulled His people through the River Jordan? It's because of His work, isn't it? It's all Him. It's His providence, it's His care in your life. And today, we don't look to an ark. We don't have priests who are out on their shoulders walking around carrying an ark, instructing us where we should go. We don't have that. We have something better, don't we? We see the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant where sins would be forgiven. We see that fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ. And in the book of Hebrews, we're told over and over again how Christ fulfills so many of these symbols that were given to the people in the Old Testament, and how Christ is the one we now look to as the one who is the author and perfecter of faith. In Hebrews chapter 2, or maybe it's chapter 3, at the beginning of the letter, it says Jesus is the captain of our faith. I love that. Look to your captain. Don't look side to side. Don't look at the roaring waters, but look to your captain who pulls you through. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, says this, Perhaps God brings us into impossible circumstances, situations so bleak and hopeless, for the very purpose of impressing upon us that if we make it through, if we endure it, if we are not overwhelmed and washed away, it will be only because of His grace and power. Is God magnifying His name in and through His people through all generations? Is He calling us, as He called them, the Israelites, to courageously follow Him into blessing as we await His return? You better believe it. And I mean every word of that. You better believe it. What are we doing but journeying through this life, aren't we? And we're, we may not be living out in such a desolate place as the Israelites were. I mean, can you imagine three days out there and all the things that they were dealing with? There's no air conditioning. Those tents weren't that nice. <laughs> there they were, lodging and dealing with all the environs that, are, that surrounded them. And they were told to believe that tomorrow the Lord was going to do a great work among them. Well, we know that the sorrow only lasts for the night and joy comes in the morning, doesn't it? And here we are, and so many times in life, it feels like you're walking through the night, you're walking through a valley that's as dark as could be, you're journeying, you're tiptoeing, and you're just saying, God, lead me. Keep doing it. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the captain of your faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus laying aside all those things that entangle you and run full steam ahead following Jesus Christ. Like 
the people in Israel, we must consecrate ourselves too as we await His return. As the Israelites were called to sober up, so we are told over and over and over again in the New Testament to be sober-minded. We are to be sober. We are to live as children of the day, not children of the night. We are children of blessing, not children of wrath. And Jesus asks this question when He gives a parable in Luke 18. He says, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? Well, He's coming back and He's going to bring great joy to our hearts on that day and to all who have loved His appearing. We are to long for His appearing, to love the thought of seeing our Savior face to face, coming back and redeeming His people. Keep your eyes fixed on this coming one, the one who has already come to pay for sins, and He's coming back, and we will reign with Him. We'll be glorified with Him. While we're on the banks of whatever Jordan we find ourselves at, hearing the roar, whatever that means to you right now, that constant roar in the back of your head, as you're dealing with thorns and thistles, as you too shake and quake, just hanging on to that thread of faith that the Lord has given you, remember that your help comes from the Lord. Just as with this people, their help came from Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, that same God helps you. Just as Israel was utterly dependent on God to cross that turbulent, fierce river, you too are reliant on the captain of your salvation. Let's courageously follow Him into blessing together. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that our salvation rests on You. It's not on us. We couldn't ever bear it. But You have taken it upon Yourself to redeem us, and we trust in Your works alone. God, we thank You for bringing us through difficult times in life that remind us deeply of the gospel and that give us hope because of the gospel. And we ask that as we look back to what You've done among Your people in all generations and we see how You have worked miracles among them and how You bolstered their faith, that we would be encouraged, that our hearts would be knit to them, our ancestors in the faith, and that we would have just more and more faith and as we talked about earlier today, joy and peace and hope in believing that you would do wonders among us today for your glory. God, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.